2: I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
1: Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the second half playbook for tech stocks and opportunities to watch for the last two quarters of the year. Then, an earnings exclusive. The CEO of Micron is going to sit down with us in just a moment. And later, Amazon takes on the FTC. The latest on that fight as Big Tech pushes back. Dee
0: and Carl, we are also keeping an eye on those debuts that we brought you yesterday. DD Clear, Sentinel One all showing two-day gains, while LegalZoom it's actually going the other way for now this morning.
3: Yeah, and a string of record highs to close out the first half of the year, with the Nasdaq still nipping at the heels of the S&P, which is on pace for its second best six months since the dot-com era. Our own Josh Lipton is live from the Nasdaq in Times Square. The
4: wrap on tech's first half. Josh. So, John, let's start with FENG, digging into those names There's Some interesting moves. Facebook and Alphabet, for example. Now, they are charging higher so far in 2021 different story though for apple that was actually its worst first half since 2016 though a nice month for the bulls they popping 10 percent in june netflix by the way the worst of the pack so far this year as for the semis the smh up about 20 percent in the first half bernstein stacy rasgon saying from a demand point of view it still looks strong meaning those end markets from pc to auto look solid next year though Tougher to call, he says. Concerns about the sustainability of demand and double ordering. In the meantime, Dr. Rasgon saying he likes semi cap names like Applied Materials and Lamb Research. And Broadcom, too. Strong dividend, high margins, attractive valuation, he argues. And let's end with some notable laggards we should point out here. Qualcomm is down about 6% this year. And Take Two, it's down about 15%, underperforming its peers, Activision and EA. Back to you all.
0: Josh, thanks for that. And stay right there. We're going to bring in Joe Lonsdale for his second half playbook, 8VC founding partner and Palantir co-founder. Joe, good morning. It's great to see you again. I want to start with the tech mega caps, the trillion dollar club. They have really regained their leadership over the last month or so, despite more regulatory scrutiny, competition with each other. What do you think they're going to do in the second half?
5: You know, these companies are making a lot of money. We're printing a lot of money right now, and they're they're a big part of our economy. And And there's a lot of people complaining about them, but it doesn't look like we're going to do anything to hurt their business.
0: What about the regulatory landscape? I know you have strong thoughts on at least a few of them, Apple and Google and their app stores.
5: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is a two-sided thing, right? On one hand, you want to have strong American companies. You don't want the Chinese ones to be the global leaders. On the other hand, it's really dangerous for our democracy and and for our innovation economy if you have these arbitrary platforms to control such a big part of our economy. I'm hoping that the regulation just forces them to be really clear about what the rules are, and doesn't let them change the rules on speech or on the companies we build onto these app stores. You have these monopolies that are very powerful monopolies that you, know, you should stop them from abusing that power. But if you know if it's done correctly, there's no reason it has to hurt their business.
3: Joe, almost so is it almost every sorry, Dad, time it ahead. seems um, when we've got these booms and there's hype around some trend, there are areas of enterprise tech that are still getting overlooked. And I wonder, uh, I both agree. in public companies and in private companies that we might expect to come public soon, what are some of the more intriguing trends? I mean, I'm talking to a lot of DevOps companies that are solving problems that don't seem to be getting a lot of focus, but what are you focused on?
5: 100%, you're, you're speaking my language. You know, I, I think blends going public soon and much of my guys from Palantir, uh, Nima, of course, is founding CEO and then the other founders built that, which is a leading company in the you know, you know tech, tech space for mortgages, for banks, there's just, there's a lot of these vertical SaaS companies right now that are all going to be coming out and going public in the next couple of years. That it, that's been the big trend in Silicon Valley the last 10 years. You've seen these great SaaS companies with, with you know, high growth, high margins, really well-run businesses. And the market continues to, you know, it's valuing SaaS pretty well right now, but there's, there's still a lot of them that if these things grow as they look like they will for the next five or 10 years, they're going to be really good investments.
1: Hey, Joe, we love getting your take on uh, what's happening with crypto. And it does seem like the last few weeks have been uh, the market responding to headlines about reg risk in China and then the UK. Today, it's India. How impressed have you been with at least Bitcoin's ability to weather those headlines? And and how important is it that we stay, say, above a certain level like 30K?
5: Oh, I don't know if there's certain levels matter so much. I mean, listen, there's there's there, there was a huge rotation into value in the stock market that happened three or four months ago. And that has been the big trend of this year. That rotation pulled back a little bit. I think I think the number one story, you know, Bitcoin has become a form of value in gold. Obviously, regulations hitting it somewhat. But I think I think the bigger thing you saw the gold stocks pull back as well when Bitcoin pulled back. This is it's 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 a, now you have to think of it as a financial asset. It's part of the global financial economy. It's, it, you have to follow the factors to drive the global economy. And I think the the biggest factor was the pullback in the in the rotation into value pulled back a little bit. I still think with the plans, you know, I was just talking to a Democratic senator actually right before I got on with you guys. They're still planning on spending a lot of money, and and they you know they're still going to be. Probably some inflationary concerns, and I think I think Bitcoin and gold are still very interesting to me over the next year.
3: I see a lot of investment, Joe, going into a lot of different places. Our Scott Cohn is in North Carolina right now, where Apple's laying down some more roots as far as facilities, and we're just seeing a lot of building happening in general. What are you leaning into coming out of this pandemic period uh, that you think might accelerate more quickly than you might have expected a year ago?
5: Well, well, yeah, exactly. There's a lot There's a lot to build here. I have a call later today with friends on how do we build more semiconductors here because we're very worried about what happens if China does something on Taiwan in the next few years and you know that the monopoly that, that you have in Taiwan right now there is very concerning given the shortages. Uh, a lot of building on the e-commerce side. E-commerce is a trend that's not going away. E-commerce fulfillment, there more warehouses, more solutions for fulfillment, companies like Deliver and others that are growing really fast trying to help merchants. You know, Amazon is 40%, the non-Amazon is 60%. The non-Amazon has to be as good as Amazon to compete. There's a lot of companies and a lot of kind of building going into helping helping those guys on that part of e-commerce continue to grow as quickly as they have been.
0: Joe, you mentioned earlier that Chinese companies could be the ones to benefit if we regulate our own big tech companies in sort of inefficient or improper ways. What did you make of Xi Jinping's speech last night in China, doubling down on one party rule, his defiance against foreign pressure? You've already said that we're too dependent on China.
5: China, China, you know, he's playing the nationalist card really hard. China, if you look at the numbers, actually, they have not had as many tech unicorns the last couple of years, probably because of a big crackdown on a lot of their tech sector. You know, it's you know, you know, friends don't let friends become Chinese billionaires. You know, it's very dangerous there. You know, it's one of our advantages. You are allowed to succeed in the U.S. You are allowed to take your success and build a lot more. Uh, you haven't seen that as much in China. I think we have to be re- we have to be really careful about this regulation, right? So in China, for example, DD is coming out soon. You know, DD is allowed to bribe African officials. It's allowed. We've seen German and French officials r- routinely get bribed. They're very open to that. If, as your American companies cannot bribe in Africa, they cannot bribe in Europe. Uh, that's, that's that's the rule here. And You know, what? that's probably a good rule, but 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 it's an example of where regulation gives China a huge advantage. Uh, so I'm not I'm not saying we should be allowed to bribe, but the, every time you make a rule, you have a trade off. China has a lot of things they can get away with that we can't. And you know, I, I think I think China is a very scary place right now. I think he's going to have to keep doubling down on the nationalist rhetoric, but I think it's going a bad direction right. with what they've been doing.
0: Right, I think you're saying there's different playing fields um, when it comes to how they may perhaps conduct business. We're going to be talking there to Micron CEO later on in the show, and you know, there's been some chatter over whether competition between U.S. and China in terms of chip making and whether the U.S. has sort of seeded its edge in that strategically, nationally important space. What well, do you we, think? We
5: still, design, we still design the majority of the top new chips here. We're still doing it for, for defense and for other areas. I think there's a big concern with fabrication where we saw what happened in COVID and when if we don't make the vaccines in a certain place, you can't get them. Uh, we, we we're realizing in a world where, it's, where there's a lot of challenges to globalization and we're China might move something on Taiwan, we need to have our own production. So I think there there are going to be some shifts there.
0: Right. And they're pouring lots of money into the space. Uh, Joe, thanks for being with us. Joe Lonsdale. Thanks, thanks a lot. So we spoke a little bit about crypto during that last conversation bitcoin touching 60 but well off that level recently although still at more than 20 percent since the start of the year so it was the time to get in or abandon ship kate rooney has been following all the ins and outs of this crazy year so far for crypto and it's really the year that we've seen bitcoin become mainstream in a lot of ways
6: absolutely that's been one of the big themes is that bitcoin is now mainstream we had paypal launch a bitcoin offering early in the year. And it's now being talked about on Wall Street in the same way that it's being talked about around the dinner table. I'm sure you've heard more people mentioning cryptocurrencies this year Uh, and a lot of big themes here. I mean, in terms of prices, Bitcoin is up about 15 percent year to date. That is pretty much in lockstep with the S&P. But if you look at the chart, it almost looks like the Matterhorn. You've got this huge up and down. And it's kind of now right where it was. So if you bought in January, you kind of didn't look at it. You might be pretty happy with your returns and people have compared it to Crypto Winter, which was sort of the next worst performance. But that was when crypto was down or Bitcoin in, in particular was down about 80% at this time of the year. So it is definitely different this time. It has matured a lot. I think it's taken more seriously as a mainstream asset and within the crypto community, at least, almost to the point where now Bitcoin is sort of for boomers, as some people joke. It's kind of the old... <laughs> Boomer crypto, coin, Boomer right? Coin. Your grandpa's
0: cryptocurrency. <laughs> but that's been an important aspect, too, the institutionalization of cryptocurrencies this year. You've also seen it on corporate balance sheets, like Tesla, MicroStrategy. It hasn't been a very good quarter, though, so what happens to companies um, that are or have been holding it this year? Do they have to take a loss?
6: That's such an interesting dynamic. So you are already exposed to the volatility of crypto prices, but if the, the price of Bitcoin goes below where some of these companies bought it, they may have to take what's known as an impairment charge. So they'll have to sort of write that down on their balance sheet. It's unclear when a lot of these companies bought Tesla, for example, is probably the biggest one we'd think of. They may have, they bought in what seems to be around 30,000. We're kind of at that level now. So folks are watching, will they take an impairment charge and will they sell any Bitcoin? They sold about 10% of their holdings last quarter. So people are really, really curious to know if they sold any.
0: Right, and that could have implications for other companies perhaps considering buying Bitcoin, putting it on their balance sheet. So that'll be interesting to see Absolutely. how it shakes out. Kate, you'll continue to to cover it for us. Thank you. Carl. Sure,
1: all right, D still to come an exclusive with the CEO of Micron coming up next. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand.
7: Wait, did that agenda just write
0: itself?
1: Words appear, making this unexplainable case.
0: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really?
1: The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
6: Canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be
0: rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
1: Let's get a gut check on some chip names today. An up and down first half for several names, Intel is down nearly 20% off the 52-week high. Taiwan Semi, Qualcomm, STM also off that level by about 15%. As for the entire sector, down about three and Micron not helping a whole lot today, down five
3: to about a one week low, John. Yeah, it is higher for the year though so far, but a beat on the top and bottom, not enough to keep shares of Micron in the green this morning. Uh, upbeat current quarter guidance to shares right now down about 5% with us now exclusively on Micron's results is the CEO, Sanjay Morotra uh, Sanjay, good to see you. Uh, so let's talk about what's good um, because these results beat despite tight supply, what do you see driving the majority of this demand across consumer and enterprise?
8: Great to be back on your show, John. And as you noted, that despite the shortages in the semiconductor ecosystem, Micron delivered excellent results in our fiscal third quarter, and we provided a very strong guidance for the fourth quarter as well. So if you look at the trends that are driving our business, of course, we have talked about trends of 5G, AI, intelligent edge and smart user devices as being secular trends for demand growth for us. And COVID has resulted in digital transformation acceleration, and on top of that, coordinated stimuluses around the globe being another additive demand driver. And then certainly semiconductor shortages in the industry that our customers are experiencing, that's leaving demand unmet. And over time, that will be continuing to be additive to our growth uh, drivers as that demand for our customers, for other semiconductors gets met, creating more opportunities for memory and storage. So all the trends of data center, PCs, smartphones, automotives, we are having records in several end market segments as well as for several product areas. So So. the memory and storage is just increasing in demand and we are best positioned ever.
3: Two factors in particular, uh, I want your thoughts on one is 5G. And from everything we see, the ramp on 5G has been faster than 4G, perhaps despite a feeling at the consumer level that it's not uh, playing out uh, according to the marketing hype. Uh, but but then also... Um, the build out of so many fabs. Uh, Whenever I see fab build out plans, I worry about oversupply and falling prices in the future. Pat Gelsinger keeps telling us not to worry about that because the demand is going to be so high. Uh, are, are, Are you feeling the same way and how are you sure?
8: So with respect to 5G, it's certainly, in the mobile space, it's a strong driver of growth. Uh, 5G smartphones need more memory and need more storage in them, each of those phones. And certainly, if you look at year-over-year, smartphone sales are expected to increase double-digit numbers. So you know, pretty solid unit growth, content growth in smartphones. And 5G smartphones, nearly 500 million phones, doubling from last year will be selling. So of course, mobile continues to be a large market. 5G is a driver, not only in mobile, but actually on the intelligent edge as well, creating great opportunity for data solutions, and data is where micron products live. With respect to the fabs and the capacity, we are extremely prudent in terms of how we grow our supply. We want to grow our supply in line with the long-term demand trends, and John, we discussed in our earnings call yesterday that we are seeing shortages across all end market segments. We see supply in the industry being short through the end of this year and into calendar year 2022. We see calendar year 22 as a robust business environment for Micron as well. In managing our supply prudently, And Micron inventories are running very lean as well. And we are making sure that we are able to manage the best mix of our business, as well as meet our customers' requirements. So I think focus on continuing, given the strong demand drivers, continuing to grow supply in line with demand, with all the vibrant demand drivers we have, I think we are very well positioned here.
1: Yeah, you're really getting to the, the story in the space, Sanjay, and that is uh, the creeping presence of semiconductors in things that weren't, uh, in which they were not present in prior cycles, right? Uh, automotive, certainly gaming, data center, it's not just phones and PCs, and that, the street's having a difficult time understanding why supply-demand dynamics are different this time, but I assume that's why you argue they are.
8: They are very different this time, as I mentioned, You know, because of the digital transformation acceleration that COVID has brought, coordinated stimuluses, world recovering from COVID at different pace around the globe, economies rebounding. And of course, so much demand being driven for semiconductors. The shortages, as they get alleviated, will continue to open up pent up demand as well. And yes, the markets today are more diversified than ever. Automotive. Electric vehicles requiring more memory and storage, actually becoming data centers on wheels in the future, and certainly smartphones, data centers, gaming, industrial applications. We just had third consecutive quarter of record in our automotive sales, and our industrial business hit a record during our fiscal third quarter as well. So we really see healthier and more robust demand environment than ever.
0: Sanjay, the market is also more diversified from a geographical standpoint. We talked about this earlier, but Beijing, you know, the trend has been cutting its reliance on Western chip makers such as Micron and boosting its own capabilities. Xi Jinping last night seemed to double down on China's technological ambitions. Are Chinese semis making progress? Do they represent a greater threat today and a few years from now than they have previously?
8: So China is certainly investing in the semiconductor industry. And there are Chinese companies that we continue to monitor closely in terms of their technology advancement. But what I will tell you is that look at Micron. We just have announced and are shipping industries leading DRAM, One Alpha, as well as industries leading NAND 176 layer technologies. We are driving innovation. We have the best-in-class technologies, and then using them to build really differentiated products that we talked about yesterday in our earnings call that will actually strengthen our profitability opportunities in the future. So continue to drive innovation, technology leadership, continuing to build it at a scale with high quality. I think these are the key factors that are important, and this is what Micron is focused on. Of course, over the years, we have dealt with a lot of competition, but we have dealt with it well, and I think you know we don't ignore any competition from China, but you really need leading-edge technology the customers in China also need leading edge quality, mm-hmm. leading edge technology at high quality and right. high scale. And that's what Micron is able to deliver to our customers worldwide, including our customers in China.
3: Sanjay, I want to end with a, a workplace and culture question a little bit unusual in that you've got a significant workforce in Idaho, but I wonder how you're handling the return to work, not just in labs and fabs, but uh, the corporate workforce Are you leaning into hybrid? Are you having everybody come back to the office more than half the time? What's the philosophy and approach?
8: So many of our uh, engineers, as well as manufacturing personnel around the globe, of course, have been coming to site and really helping drive uh, our ability to meet our customer's requirements, as well as drive our innovation agenda other functions in the company that are not engineering and manufacturing related more and more of them have started coming back to on site and for them we will have a mix of hybrid team uh, as well as some team that will be on site at all times it really depends john on the function that you're performing what is very clear is that in order to continue to drive the innovation and execution engine, it is important to have face-to-face time in the office as well, particularly given the hardware nature of our business, the labs and the fabs that you mentioned. So we will have a hybrid for certain part of our team member workforce and for other team members that have to be on site. They will continue to be on site. So we are managing this on an ongoing basis. And over time, we will have uh, some that, uh, that will have Uh, uh, be on-site, others that will have um, part-time, per week, on-site, rest working remote. So we will definitely provide, and that's one thing we learned from the COVID environment is we will provide greater flexibility to our team members, and that's important, but mm. not lose sight right. of driving innovation, driving ex- execution, and really that culture that builds, the loyalty that builds, and the camaraderie that builds by being on-site, we are continuing to manage the mix of the two.
3: Flexibility, but a lot of on-site, little reality check on tech check. Uh, Sanjay, thank you.
8: Thank you
0: check out shares of amazon the company's bumpy first half only netting a roughly six point gain for the first six months of the year though it is up more than 20 percent from its lows for 2021 could antitrust tailwinds push the company back into the storm in the second half of the year remember andy jassy will be steering that ship we debate that next tech check is back in just three minutes
1: canva presents unexplained appearances Let's reset here near the bottom of the hour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Looking to catch the next Uber or Airbnb before anyone else? Julia's got more on that in a moment, but let's get a news update first with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel.
9: Hi, Carl. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The search for survivors from the Surfside condo collapse was paused this morning. That's over concerns about the stability of the section that is still standing. The halt comes as President Biden is in Florida to meet with families of victims and also thank first responders. The death toll remains at 18, with 145 people still missing. The Supreme Court upholding voting restrictions in Arizona, and the decision could make it harder to challenge voting measures put in place by Republican lawmakers following last year's election. Weekly jobless claims falling more than expected to another 15-month low of 364,000. It's the seventh decline in eight weeks, although continuing claims froze slightly. And we do have the jobs report tomorrow. And shares of Walgreens Boots Alliance falling to a four-month low. That's despite beating sales and profit estimates and also raising guidance. The stock has trimmed some of its losses, but it's still the biggest loser in the S&P 500. You're now up to date. Carl, I'll send it back to you.
1: All right, Rahel, thank you very much. As you know by now, Amazon calling on the FTC chair to recuse herself. The tech giant filed a 25-page request pointing to Chair Lena Khan's past antitrust recommendations against Amazon, dating back to her days at Yale Law School. The FTC declined to comment on that request. They say petitions and letters to the commission aren't public. As of now, the FTC has an open investigation into Amazon's business practices and recently secured the right to review the company's proposed acquisition of Hollywood studio MGM. Joining us today, the author of the book Goliath, the Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy and Newsletter Big, Matt Stoller. Matt, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like Amazon's letter uh, has you convinced.
7: <laughs> Look, um, you know, the chair, Lena Khan, is a pro free market. Um, advocate for business, she just opposes monopolists and sees the law in a particular way. And so of course you're going to find that the the biggest enemy of of fair competition and open markets is a monopolist and that's what you're seeing here.
1: So is there precedence for a move like this for an actual recusal?
7: Not for what Amazon is is asking. Amazon kind of mischaracterized the, the precedence here. Um, No one has ever said that if you're an enforcer and you have specific views on the law, that you have to recuse yourself. That's just kind of silly.
3: Matt, we saw a judge this week really press Facebook's critics um, at the federal and state level on how they define a market and whether Facebook really is a monopoly. So how is Amazon a monopolist when it's got arguably 50 percent of less even of the U.S. e-commerce market?
7: Yeah it's a it's a it's a great question I think you can look at a bunch of different um, uh, you can look at you can define markets in lots of different ways. So certainly Amazon has monopoly power over say books right and you can look into that specific sector of the market and say they have dominant market power and you can actually look there's a there's a bunch of uh, of areas where they have uh, market power. Um, And, you know, you can you can see what they're doing. The antitrust law is not just about what happens if you are a monopolist. It's also what happens um, if you are engaged in what are called restraints of trade. So these are certain contractual arrangements, things like price discrimination, where you don't actually have to be a monopolist to violate the law. And Amazon is probably doing a bunch of stuff there. Um, That's what some of uh, Chair Khan's scholarship was about. Yeah,
3: that sounds a little fuzzy, though. Like, yeah, you could, I I don't think anybody's arguing right now about Amazon's power in books. That's not what people are upset about. And yet this term monopolist is getting thrown around a lot. It reminds me of that Princess Bride uh, line, that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. I mean, is there potentially going to be a lot more pressure on those who are pressuring big tech to define uh, their argument a lot more narrowly and specifically?
7: yeah i think that there's there's you know the judges read the law very narrowly and so there's going to be a lot of pressure on enforcers you know to actually be specific about what they mean a lot of the the legislative efforts in congress are going to go there as well you're going to have to be very clear about what a line of business is uh but in general i I think it's pretty obvious that these firms are dominant that they have Um, market power which they use and there are things that are not fuzzy that you can go after like a whole range of mergers that these firms have engaged in so as an example amazon had a lot of power but not monopoly in the sale of diapers online and there was a company Quidzy, which sold diapers through diapers.com and jeff bezos said we're going to lose money by underpricing them until they sell out to us and that is ultimately what's happened. That is both a violation of predatory pricing law and it's a violation of the Clayton Act which is merger law but it doesn't require a showing of monopoly power and there's a bunch of stuff like that that's not fuzzy that you could you know that you could go after but you are right that judges read these laws very narrowly it's why there's action in Congress and it's why there's a lot of pressure on enforcers.
0: Matt, you bring up the example of Quincy, the diaper company, but then you also have the rise of a company like The Honest Company that's been quite successful in the D2C ecosystem, listing its products both on Amazon but also going straight to the consumer. So I hear your point that it may be obvious that these companies are becoming more and more dominant, but is it obvious that they're bad for consumers or they stifle innovation? You have the rise of Shopify as well and, you know, the direct-to-consumer ecosystem that has thrived over the last few years.
7: Yeah, and there's an open. It's a great question, and there's an there's an open question here of would this stuff have happened anyway, or is in and in that context, Amazon just kind of captured control over a large chunk of it, or did Amazon develop it? And I think it's pretty clear that this stuff would have happened anyway. And the other point here, and this is what call Racine in in DC, he has an antitrust suit against Amazon, showing that Amazon forces entities that want to sell through Amazon to raise their prices where they're not selling through Amazon so that's one of the reasons why it looks like prices are low on Amazon it's not because. You know everything the prices are as low as they could be It's that if you need to sell through Amazon and everybody who wants to get to consumers sells through Amazon then you have to raise your prices where you're where you're not selling on Amazon- um, in order to let in order for Amazon to let you have access to their customers and so there's it's actually not good for consumers what Amazon is doing. Um, And it is there's a lot of coercive practices here. And there are there is is litigation there now from a state. And my guess is that you're going to see other states come in and and make this same claim. Uh,
1: Well, it's one more interesting chapter in what's been a busy week uh, for big tech and regulation, as we all know, whether that's Facebook, FTC or now this Amazon uh, letter. Uh, Matt, appreciate it very much. Thanks.
7: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Shares of EV makers Neo and Xpeng Electric this morning now losing steam, reporting strong delivery numbers for the month of June, though. Read more on that surge this morning on CNBC.com. Neo in the red, Xpeng still holding on to some gains. Meantime, more Disney+, Plus, less AMC. The results of our CNBC stock survey are coming up at noon. A lot more tech check is straight ahead. Stay with us. It has been a huge quarter, a huge week for IPOs, and also for CNBC's Disruptor 50 index. The creator of our Disruptor 50, Julia Borston, joins us now with a look at the index's performance and which IPOs to watch for next. It's hard to believe, Julia, that we still have a very robust pipeline given everything we've been covering, especially over
2: the last few days. Absolutely, D. Such a in the IPO market. Now, today, the disruptor 50 index is adding a record number of companies that went public in the last quarter. Ten companies, including three which went public just yesterday, making a total of 70 companies in the Disruptor 50 index as of today. Now, the, uh, this, the recent addition of list of companies to the list includes crypto giant Coinbase, payment platform Marketa, and yesterday's three IPOs, Chinese ride hailing giant DD, biometrics company Clear, as well as AI cybersecurity company Sentinel One. So now the index is an equal rated basket of all of the former Disruptor 50 companies from each of the past nine years that have gone public. Year-to-date, the index is tracking pretty much in line with the NASDAQ, but over the past 12 months, it is outperforming the NASDAQ up about 73%, while the NASDAQ is up about, I'm sorry, CNBC Disruptor 50 index is about up about 75%, while the NASDAQ is up about 42%. It has also outperformed the Renaissance IPO ETF, which is up 60%. Uh, In that same time period, the Disruptor 50 index is up 75%. So now there are 12 more companies in the pipeline that could be added to the index as soon as next quarter. There are three pending IPOs, Duolingo, Warby Parker, and Robinhood. There's a direct listing and then seven SPAC deals in the works as well, including WeWork, Ginkgo Bioworks, and BuzzFeed. So you can get a closer look at Disruptor 50 companies both old and new in our new Disruptor 50 newsletter. Go sign up at cnbc.com slash newsletter. So, dear it's going to be really interesting to see if this next round of companies, the 10 that were added today, will continue to outperform as the last batch has.
1: Uh, Julia, fascinating work. Uh, and uh, definitely this week when we had three disruptors uh, go public on the same day. That's our Julia Borston. We'll take a break here. When we come back, a lot more on Apple and the investments that the company is making in its physical office space. Plus, take a look at shares of ZipRecruiter. Barclays initiates overweight, price target of $30. They say the AI-based matching differentiates the company from the competition and ahead of a uh, wave of hiring perhaps this September. For all the biggest calls on Wall Street, you can
3: subscribe to CNBC Pro, cnbc.com pro. We'll be right back. We are less than two weeks away from the return of America's top states for business on CNBC, handicapping the race between the states for business and jobs. The events of the past year and a half have transformed that battle, particularly for tech companies. And Scott Cohn is live in a state that just not one of the first big wins in this post-pandemic, well, we hope post-pandemic world, North Carolina. Scott?
10: Yeah, John, we are in Raleigh and not far from where I am, Apple is getting set to build its first corporate campus on the East Coast. It's a billion dollar investment in the famous Research Triangle region, 3,000 jobs with an average pay of $187,000 a year in cutting edge fields. But for Apple, like a lot of companies, the pandemic actually accelerated their expansion plans. And interestingly, I'm told that the, the plans for this uh, hub did not really change as the result of the pandemic because Apple, unlike a lot of tech companies, is not moving in a big way toward remote work. So what's that done? Well, it's supercharged an already very hot housing market. Apple employees already starting to make their plans to move here, we're told, and asking about things like alternative energy and sustainability. So you look at the price prices here, the median home price in the Triangle region now up nearly 20%, uh, and a lot of that coming uh, in the month since Apple announced its plans in April.
11: My phone started blowing up with text messages from current and active buyers I'm working with. I think the news just created a sense of, a higher sense of urgency and panic among current buyers in the market.
10: In our Top States for Business study, we try and look at the factors that mean the most for business. And this year, cost of doing business has come back to the top. North Carolina is providing some $845 million in incentives to lure Apple here, uh, followed by infrastructure. This is uh, uh, going to be a big issue here, of course, and Apple is actually going to pay to fund some $110 million worth of infrastructure improvements uh, nationwide, or statewide, I should say, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, then there's quality of life and inclusiveness. That is something that we are told was a, a point in the negotiations here. North Carolina does not have the best record on that front, but apparently may have made enough movements now to, uh, to seal the deal. Plus, they have the local talent, and, and that certainly did help. More about our study at topstates.cnbc.com. The full rankings coming out on July 13th. John?
1: Actually, Scott, I'll take it. And it's fascinating uh, the way in which remote work is affecting uh, your top states list. That's our Scott Cohn. Scott, thanks. When we come back, the Nasdaq's first public space company, the CEO, live from Times Square, in a
3: moment. Welcome back. Astra, an aerospace company sending satellites, not people, into space is debuting on the NASDAQ today. The Bill Gates-backed company is listing at a $2 billion valuation via SPAC. And joining us now, along with our own Morgan Brennan, is Astra founder and CEO, Chris Kemp. Chris, uh, great to have you. Uh, The the business of space, as we look into the future, fascinating because of the, the potential that we're seeing now in reusability and I guess frequency of launches that that is going to allow a a different kind of economics. Tell us first what Astra adds to that.
12: Well, you know, there's a trillion dollar space economy that's developing and hundreds of companies over the past few years have been formed. Many of them will join Astra on public markets uh, in the months ahead. And they're all trying to go to different places in space on different schedules and having a small system where we can uh, frequently launched from anywhere on earth to anywhere in space is the really only way that they're going to be able to develop, innovate, and get new capabilities into earth orbit uh, to develop uh, new applications.
3: Now, it's a, a new business, relatively speaking, for investors to understand. So help us understand what the path to profitability looks like as you do uh, ramp that frequency and get better and better at having a higher yield of what you're actually able to deliver, uh, is that what leads to the the profitability that investors are going to want
12: to see? That's right. Just think about the economies of scale when you start making hundreds or even thousands of very small rockets. It's it's like a, a Cessna. Uh, Companies like Textron make hundreds of them per year. Our rocket weighs almost exactly as much as a small aircraft, and it shouldn't cost much more than that to produce either, as long as you're producing them at scale. Only two ways to get to space are to build a giant rocket and get the uh, the efficiencies that you get out of a massive rocket. Uh, There's some great work going on in that area. Uh, Or to build a rocket factory and just make as many rockets as you can and bring costs down through economies of scale.
11: CHRIS, it's Morgan. Congratulations on going public today. Um, just to dig into that a little bit further, I mean, gangbusters growth is what you're forecasting over the next four years as you do ramp production and you do ramp these launches. But um, there's obviously the technological and logistical uh, pieces that are involved in this, but also there, there is the customer base itself. Given the fact that we do have so much competition out there, I mean, just yesterday, Virgin Orbit with a second successful mission, SpaceX doing a dedicated ride share. Plus, you have other competitors like Rocket Lab out there. Is there enough demand for you to be able to get to daily launches?
12: Well, we ha- we already have 50 launches under contract, and that represents over 150 million dollars of revenue, and over a billion dollars of additional backlog where we're uh, we'll be flying even more uh, in the future. Uh, there's a there's a tremendous amount of demand and not very much supply. If you look at some of the companies that you named. Uh, There are very few flights actually going where those customers want to go and exactly when they want to get there. And that's where Astra stands apart. Uh, It's just like if you go to the airport and book a flight, you don't book that a year or two in advance. Uh, That's what you have to do with some of the larger rockets. Uh, With Astra, uh, we'll have so many flights, you'll be able to just get on the next one, we'll be able to provide next day space, we'll be able to provide the kind of flexibility uh, that a new growing economy and, and growing marketplace requires.
11: And of course, we know the next major milestone and what investors, the new investors in your company are now going to be focusing on in the near term is that launch of Rocket 3.3, that that new iteration after you did have that launch last December that reached space but didn't quite make orbit. When is that going to happen?
12: Uh, That'll happen before the end of the summer, and that will kick off our first commercial launch. And we'll be doing uh, about a dozen of those starting monthly before the end of the year. And uh, we we do have uh, 15 of those flights scheduled for next year already. And that'll ramp up until we reach daily space delivery, where I think we'll really truly uh, reach an inflection point where uh, space will truly be accessible to this new generation of entrepreneurs and companies that are building all these exciting new applications.
3: Now, Chris, you were just talking about demand. Tell us a bit about margin and sort of how um, your ramp will change the economics of space. I keep thinking back to five years ago when Facebook lost uh, its satellites in that SpaceX launch that didn't work out the way that they wanted. If you're able to get more frequent, uh, to to what degree are you able to kind of mix in the higher value uh, payload uh, that Mm -hmm. customers want?
12: Well, most of the new constellations and services in space will not be based on single satellites. They'll be based on very large constellations of very small satellites in very low Earth orbit. And what that means is no one satellite or no one launch really will impact the uh, service. And so we think a lot about this like you think about uh, Gmail or Google. No one server or even one data center could take that service down because they've been, defi- they've been designed fundamentally as highly resilient distributed systems. That same technology we've seen in uh, consumer and web is now moving into space. And so we're really seeing the space industry and the technology industry bridged uh, by companies like Astra. Uh,
3: exciting times when you can apply uh, technology and skill to this sort of thing. Chris Kemp, CEO of Astra, thank you. And Morgan Brennan, thanks for lending your expertise as well.
11: Thank you both.
0: A reminder, as we had to break, if you missed part of the show, follow our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, available wherever you download your podcast. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
1: Amazon is eyeing their own rebel alliance and Insider out with a report that says the tech giant has held talks with Slack, Dropbox and others floating a productivity bundle for Amazon Web Services in a bid to take on Microsoft's Office 365 Empire. And on Jeff Bezos's last day as CEO. Stepping down and assuming the role of executive chair beginning Monday, July 5th, the date marks 27 years to the day that Amazon was incorporated in 94 before going public three years later in May of 97. The Everything Store climbed nearly 230,000 percent since those early days. Bezos shifts his focus to infinity and beyond, dedicating his time to the Bezos Earth Fund, the Washington Post, the Amazon Day One Fund, and of course, his rocket company Blue Origin, which will take him into orbit on July 20. Replacing Bezos is Andy Jassy, of course, longtime chief of AWS, whose leadership has been instrumental to Amazon's growth. The cloud division responsible for more than 60 percent of the tech giant's entire operating profits in 2020. Don't miss tomorrow's show. We'll do a deep dive into Amazon, into Bezos's legacy and what's next for the company with Kleiner Perkins chairman John Doerr. Couldn't have a more perfect guest, John, and talk about the
3: end of an era. Yeah, um, And we'll see what the next era brings, Carl. Jassy is in place. Bezos certainly not going away. A lot of times, founders still very much involved. Yes, as for
1: year-to-day gains, about 5%, 6% for Amazon, roughly half of what the S&P has done.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.